This podcast is entitled, The Evidence, Empathy is Good for Your Health and Well-Being. It is based on Chapter 6 of the book, Empathy Lessons by Lou Augusta. Copyright, Lou Augusta. Empathy is good for your health and well-being. Empathy is on a short list of stress reduction practices, including meditation, mindfulness, Tai Chi, spending time in a sensory deprivation tank, and yoga. Receiving empathy in the form of a gracious and generous listening is like getting a spa treatment for the soul. The healing powers of stress reduction are formidable. Expanding empathy reduces stress, and reducing stress expands empathy. A positive feedback loop is enacted. Expanding empathy expands well-being. Here, empathy is both the end and the means. A substantial body of evidence-based science indicates that empathy is good for a person's health. This is not breaking news and was not just published yesterday. We don't need more data. We need to start applying the data we have. We need expanded empathy. Evidence-based research demonstrates the correlation between health care providers who deliver empathy to their patients and favorable health care outcomes. What is especially interesting is that some of these evidence-based studies specifically exclude psychiatric disorders and include mainline medical outcomes such as reduced cholesterol, improved type 2 diabetes, and improvement in related lifestyle disorders. Generalizing on this research, a small set of practices as noted, such as receiving empathy, meditation, mindfulness, sensory deprivation, and yogic meditation, and tai chi promote well-being by reducing inflammation. These practices are not reducible to empathy or vice versa, but they all share a common factor, reduced inflammation. These anti-inflammatory in interventions have been shown to make a difference in controlled experiments, evidence-based research, and peer-reviewed publications. Now, I am not going to include in the voice part of this podcast, cluttering it up with a lot of footnotes. Those interested in the exact bibliographical references, as well as additional information related to, but not necessarily always explicitly using the word empathy, will usefully consult the blog post of the same name, dated October 4th, 2019, and the updated post, April 17, 2021. You can get this without buying the book, Empathy Lesson, in which the bibliographical references are also, of course, included. Using empathy in relating to people is a lot like using a parachute if you jump out of an airplane. The evidence is overwhelming that such a practice is appropriate and useful in the vast majority of cases. The accumulated mass of decades of experience also counts as evidence 
in a strict sense. Any so-called hidden or confounding variables will be washed out by the massive amount of evidence. For example, that parachutes produce the desired main effect, a relatively soft landing. Likewise, with penicillin to treat a bacterial infection. The overwhelming amount of evidence is that this is useful and appropriate in the vast majority of cases. If you want to overcome the infection, a shot appropriately dosed of penicillin or a appropriate antibiotic is going to produce the desired main effect. Indeed, it would be unethical to perform a double blind test of penicillin at this time, since if the person needed the drug and it were available, it would be unethical not to give it to him or her. Yes, there are a few exceptions. Some people are allergic to penicillin, but by far and in large, likewise with empathy, there is a vast amount of evidence and experience. If you do not begin with empathy and relating to other people, you are headed for trouble. It's going to be like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute or trying to fight a bacterial infection without the benefit of modern antibiotics. It may not go that well. Empathy is at the top of my list of stress reduction methods, but it is not the only item on the list. Empathy alongside with mindfulness, a form of meditation, yoga, tai chi, spending time in a sensory deprivation tank, not otherwise discussed in great detail in this podcast, yoga, tai chi, and the like, need to be known better as interventions that reduce inflammation and restore homeostatic equilibrium to the human body, the organism, according to evidence-based research. The thing is, we humans, we humans are biology all the way down, and the biology has got us in a bind, since it did not involve at the same rate as our human social structures. Key term, evolution, variation, and natural selection. The biology evolved at a much slower, more languous pace than our human social structures. When bacteria attack the human body, the body's immune system mounts an inflammatory defense that sends macrophages, literally big eaters, to the site of the attack and causes sickness behavior in the person. The infected person takes to bed, sleeps either too much or too little, has no appetite or too much appetite, experiences low energy, possibly has a fever, has the blahs, body ache, and flu-like symptoms. This response has evolved over millions of years and is basically healthy as the body conserves its energy. Stay in bed, get plenty of rest, drink a lot of liquids, keep warm, so that the body can fight off the infection using its natural immune response. Now, fast forward to modern times. The natural response did not envision the stresses of modern life back when we were short stature proto-humanoids inhabiting the Serengeti plain and defending ourselves against large predators and hostile neighbors. Basically, the body responds in the same way to the chronic stresses of modern life. The boss at work is a bully. The mortgage is overdue. The teenagers are acting out. The spouse is having a midlife crisis. And the result 
is sickness behavior, many of the symptoms of which resemble clinical depression. But there's no infection. There's no underlying bacteria pathogen. There's just the inflammation. The inflammation becomes chronic and the body loses its sensitivity to naturally occurring anti-inflammatory hormones, which would ordinarily kick in to down-regulate the inflammation after a few days. Peer-reviewed papers demonstrate that interventions such as empathy reduce biological markers of inflammation and restore equilibrium. Now, I hasten to add that I shall call out several names of researchers and scientists towards the end of this podcast, but for the exact bibliographical reference, you're going to need to reference either chapter six of the book, Empathy Lessons, or uh, as noted, you don't have to buy the book. You can see the blog post of the same title dated October 4, 2019, and updated April 17, 2020. This inflammation and the dynamics around it is also a metaphor. When an angry person expresses themselves, we say they're burned up. We say they're inflamed. When an angry, inflamed person is listened to empathically, is given a good listening, as I like to say, the person frequently calms down, remits, and regains his or her equilibrium. Thus, empathy migrates onto the short list of inflammation-reducing interventions. The compelling conclusion that empathy is good for your health and well-being. Empathy is a spa treatment for the soul. My first training in stress reduction through empathy came from my dear Grandma Laura. With Grandma Laura, the force of empathy was strong. However, she came from a time and place prior to the internet that did not require much formal education. Grandma Laura may actually have believed that getting caught in the rain caused upper respiratory infections such as the common cold. She was happy to make the chicken soup to snooze and soothe my sneezes and colds, and she endorsed chicken soup as the treatment of choice for the common cold. Grandma was relying on common sense and a wisdom that is all too rare in our own time. She noted that people who were physically stressed out by exposure to cold and wet weather succumbed to the common cold. She also observed that rest and warmth, nourishing liquids, chicken soup, provided relief to the sneezing, sniffling, suffering survivor into cold had run its natural course. Now, I acknowledge the book, Chicken Soup for the Soul. I stopped counting how many had been published in the series when the number hit 18. Keep up the great work. The point is that chicken soup delivered in the proper context reduces stress, and so it reduces the symptom of inflammation runny nose, and so on, that occur when the immune system fights back against infection. Thus, empathy is compared to chicken soup. It has also been compared to sitting back into a hot bath and taking the healing waters as part of a spa treatment. My grandma may not actually 
have had the distinction immune system. This distinction provides what we call the confounding variable in getting caught in the rain causes the common cold. Of course, the rain does not cause the common cold. The, com the rain causes wetness. It's the rhinovirus, so-called, that causes the common cold. What getting caught in the rain does is reduce the body's immune system's defense against viruses such as the rhinovirus that already live in the body and are looking for an opportunity to multiply in case the immune system is weakened opportunistically. The seizing, sniffling, suffering are the inflammation that occur when the body's immune system is mobilized and fights back against the virus by producing the bodily defenses called antibodies, sending them to the site of the infection, the nose to disrupt viral attack. Antibodies are doing this battle against the attacking viruses, the antigens. The results looked at from a 30,000 foot level is that the person experiences all the annoying symptoms of a head code. I have a code. In my case, grandma was spot on in correlating getting wet and physically exhausted by the storm with coming down with the cold. We forget, we forgive, but should not forget her lack of scientific rigor. After all, she was a world-class cook, even if an unsung one up until now, not an immunologist. I hasten to add, neither am I an immunologist, but hence all of the footnotes separately documented. A word of caution. The distinction body and soul is already embedded into our modern science, our thinking, our way of relating to other people, and our way of relating to ourselves. We are not going to undo centuries of distinguishing mind and body in this podcast. Still, we may usefully recall one philosopher's anecdote, that philosopher being Ludwig Wittgenstein. Quote, the human body is the best picture of the soul. End quote. Throughout the following conversation, keep that in mind. As noted, a small set of practices such as receiving empathy, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, tai chi, promote recovery and well-being in reducing inflammation. The solution then is a hot bath, a spa treatment, don't laugh. There are many less useful interventions available. The limitation of a spa treatment is that it provides symptom relief, not long-term solution. After the benefits of the spa treatment wear off in a couple of weeks, the person is right back where he or she started. The difference between empathy and a hot bath, granted that both are relaxing, is that empathy provides the structural change to the person's personality, expanding resilience, emotional stability, and relatedness. Advantage empathy. Empathy is superior to a spa treatment for the soul. How is this so? Thanks for asking. Today, it is fashionable to say that whatever benefits a person, whether Prozac or mindfulness, 
rewires the brain. In plain English, practicing empathy, receiving empathy, being empathic also rewires the brain. That is, it builds new habits. Empathy builds new habits in relationships, in engaging and listening to the other person, in interacting across personal boundaries, in reducing conflict, in expanding toleration of upsets and relatedness, and in building a community of engaged neighbors. Expanding one's empathy enhances one's ability to deal with personal dynamics in friendships, intimate relations, and in groups such as the workplace, school, and community. Expanding empathy enhances a person's stability, strength of character, and emotional equilibrium in the face of destabilizing upsets. It enables one to be with people in events that are difficult. Expanding one's empathy enables one effectively to get results where previously one would have experienced failure and frustration and the resulting stress. With acknowledgement and apologies to Donald Hebb, quote, neurons that fire together, wire together, end quote. Rewiring is the new buzzword for building habits. If the ideas in biology and related neurology that we explore in this podcast are a tad technical, I am unapologetic. Psychopharmacologists and practitioners of behavioral interventions, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, have been less than charitable in engaging with the status of the evidence on behalf of empathy and empathy-based interventions. Dismissive is the word that comes to mind, and yet the evidence-based, peer-reviewed distinctions that are engaged in this engagement with empathy cannot be dismissed. Those with economic and territorial incentives to provide a complex and expensive solution do not necessarily welcome a less complex or less expensive one, such as empathy. The results are now in. Substantial evidence is available of what most people with common sense, including my grandma Laura, have appreciated all along, that empathy and being treated empathically are good for people's health and well-being. Stress reduction works. Empathy works. The work we do in this podcast enables us to expand our understanding of why. Stress reduction practices, as noted, such as meditation, yoga, tai chi, do not necessarily work in the same way as empathy. Full disclosure, I practiced tai chi weekly for over four years, but have limited experience with the others. I have spent about a thousand hours on separate one and two hour occasions in sensory deprivation tanks, and it is very relaxing and stress reducing, according to my own personal experience. I hypothesize that all these practices create a distance between one's experience and one's cognitive and emotional processes. This distance opens up a place for empathy to expand and a place for authentic relatedness to occur. When this distance between one's experience and one's cognitive and emotional responses becomes habitual, today we would say encoded in the neurons, then the change is structural and thus long-lasting and enduring. How does this work? 
Stress and inflammation. Some is good, too much is not. As Grandma Laura understood implicitly, stress reduction reduces the body's immune defenses. The person becomes vulnerable to disease. What is less well understood is how the body responds to social stress. And what the heck is social stress anyway? We will precisely define all kinds of stress shortly, but for the moment, social stress is stress related to competition and conflict between people who are trying to live together in a human community. The body responds with an immune response because social stress seems to simulate the attack of something coming at the person and the person's body from the outside, such as an infectious agent like a virus or a bacteria or a skinned knee. The immense uh, immune system response to the perceived stress results in inflammation, which in turn aggravates emotional and socio-psychosomatic disorders. The challenge is to connect the dots between stress, inflammation, physical diseases, emotional disorders, and then intervene with empathy to interrupt the negative cycle. Social stress is a feature of life for people who have to work and live with other people, which, excepting a few hermits, is all people. Social stress includes the struggle and effort that people confront in careers, relationships, finance, scheduling, and sustaining emotional equilibrium. Social stress occurs in divorces, misbehaving children, unemployment, adultery, and bankruptcies. Social stress occurs in the competition and aggression between people and groups such as bullying, office politics, stranger danger on the streets, and a host of interpersonal conflicts and pressures too lengthy to list here. We've been using the word stress as if we knew what it is, and we do know a lot about stress from firsthand experience. Stress is a distressing part of life. Stress is distressing, full stop, literally. Chronic stress is a pervasive challenge. However, the complete absence of stress is not an option. The complete absence of stress means you're dead or at least in a persisting vegetative state. Not good. Social stress is a substantial issue in attaining and managing physical and emotional well-being. It is no surprise that empathy has a significant role to play in shifting out of the stress with which the person is stuck and struggling. Let's define our terms. Stress comes in five forms. We use the word stress too casually as something to be avoided at all costs. As noted, we forgot that zero stress means you're dead, a situation one generally tries to avoid. Yet, engaging with stress is, well, stressful. Let us define stress and do so precisely by enumerating its different forms. Number one, acute time-limited stressor. For example, public speaking, is an acute time-limited stressor. When asked, what do you fear the most? Most people say death comes in second place on the list. Number one is public speaking. People for whom public speaking is a stressor feel better as soon as they are able to step down from the podium. 
In contrast, for those who train as speakers and performers, the stress of speaking can act as a positive stimulant. If a trained speaker does not feel a touch of butterflies in the stomach prior to a performance, that's considered a bad sign. Such people get worried if they do not experience some stress because they know the stress will provide them with the extra energy they need to deliver a compelling performance. Thus, stress has a wholesome, healthy dimension when it gets people on their best game. Number two, a personal, life-challenging, defining challenge of a situation. A life-defining challenge. People facing a crucial life-defining examination, such as the bar exam in law or medical boards, experience acute stress. This is different than stage fright in that it is not public, yet one is being tested, judged, and evaluated by those in authority. The risk is not of looking good or of not acquiring the required professional license. Still, the stress is time-limited. Once it is over, pending a favorable outcome, the stress is, not, is then noticeably reduced. Once again, some stress in anticipating the exam or relevant situation is useful in providing an incentive to prepare. Number three, naturalistic stressors. Different kinds of natural or social events, such as the death of a family member, loss of a job, or divorce are stressful. These can be highly stressful, yet in every case, a definite endpoint exists that one can try to imagine. Mourning the loss of a loved one lasts about a year, people find other jobs, people meet new partners. Many of the rituals surrounding the death of a person to whom one is close are designed to facilitate the process of working through the stress. Funerals and wakes, when they, are, when they function as designed, are calculated to evoke stories about the loved one, and the accompanying tears and laughter serve to process the loss. The storytelling itself is an empathic moment, making present a response in the form of acknowledgement and recognition of the life and the contribution of the lost loved one. Number four, trauma as such. An event in the past that lives on emotionally, such as the experience of war or rape, is stressful. Even if the trauma is separated from the present by a significant interval of time, the stressor may live on. The person may experience and re-experience the trauma as intrusive thoughts, recurring nightmares, blunted affect, amnesia, avoidance, an exaggerated startle response, and so on. In short, the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, are satisfied, whether or not they rise to a clinically relevant level. This is chronic stress that does not quit. The treatment of choice for stressors related to traumatic events that keep coming back and live on is described then as a treatment of exposure. The survivor is supposed to do that which he or she is least inclined to do, expose himself to the trauma again, but now in a controlled and gradual way, redescribing the upset imaginatively or vicariously, and redescribing the experience in relative detail, the unintegrated emotions and feelings are given a chance to be re-experienced and integrated. The trauma shrinks. Do this repeatedly, 
and the trauma shrinks repeatedly, little by little, step by step. The trauma becomes manageable, which means it stops being traumatic. One gets one's power back in the face of the upset, whereas previously the event was an intrusive, monster-like interruption that one was trying to escape without noticeable success. For example, in eye movement desensitization routine EMDR, the focusing on the back and forth movement of the light sequence or the therapist moving the baton binds the patient attention and potential fear while he or she recalls, talks about, gives an account of, sometimes merely thinks about and re-experiences the trauma in a non-traumatic or at least trauma-reducing way. An entire account of trauma and recovery is implied here, and for further details, the interested reader is referred, as mentioned previously, to the relevant literature. This is where empathy comes into its own as an intervention. What is often overlooked in accounts of such exposure-directed interventions is that unless the re-experiencing is undertaken in a context of an empathic relatedness, it is like dental work without Novocaine. Ouch! Some patients who are hurting enough and courageous enough may stick with it, but many will just make other arrangements, such as drinking alcohol to excess, not come back and continue to struggle in stuckness. The empathic relatedness provides the survivor with the empathic connectedness needed to risk diving back into the emotional dimension of the trauma, which had previously been held at arm's length knowing that he can reconnect empathically with a facilitator to regain his emotional equilibrium. Five, long-term stressors. Long-term stressors are ones with no defined or obvious end in sight. Examples of long-term stress include caring for a loved one who has a progressive degenerative disease such as Alzheimer's, suffering from a life-threatening or serious chronic illness oneself, loss of one's home, that is becoming homeless, being employed significantly beneath one's educational level on a long-term basis, financial ruin due to illness or criminal behavior. Think of Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme that financially destroyed many middle-class lives, legal troubles, growing up being African-American in states where racially motivated lynchings occurred, or arguably growing up African-American anywhere in the States, being a refugee or immigrant and a stranger in a strange land. Relatively less extreme examples such as social isolation, long-term loneliness, low socioeconomic status, poverty, being the target of repeated bullying are less immediately destructive of one's humanity, yet the cumulative stress entailed is substantial. From a completely different perspective, the modern, relatively well-to-do family has to run the gauntlet of seemingly endless micro-stressors, key term micro-stressor. While not comparable with war or rape, micro-stressors are the abundant small injuries, insults, frustrations, and misfortunes that occur on a daily basis in fast-paced modern life. These are first-world problems that end up taking seven years off one's life expectancy. Getting the children up at an early hour and delivering them to school, 
prior to a challenging commute to work is stressful. The boss at work is not necessarily an example of empathic understanding. On the contrary, it's by the numbers. Get your numbers. And if you don't get your numbers, your days are numbered. If you don't have any numbers, that itself is a bad sign, and we will find some for you. Relations with coworkers and superiors can be Machiavellian and conflict-laden. As noted, and not for the last time, the things that make us good at business, compliance, dealing with competitive pressures, solving technical problems, managing technology, solving legal issues, these things do not expand affection and affinity or empathy in our relationships. Cynicism and survival drive out empathy, intensifying stress. Then the reverse commute back home, chauffeuring the children around to activities such as soccer or play dates, uh, which we wish we could do in the pandemic, but are stressed out because we can't have that kind of stress to which the children are entitled and which they require in order to become well-rounded, successful human beings. Strained relationships with these very kids over homework and schedule, and then with the spouse over lack of satisfying relatedness, much less a sex life, and the drumbeat of micro-stressors goes on. The formula for widespread chronic stress is complete. Social stress enters the body through the immune system. The body responds to common bacterial infections and to wounds such as a scraped knee by becoming inflamed. How this works and does not work becomes a tad technical, and I have to ask the listener's patience in laying out the distinctions needed to connect the dots between stress, inflammation, and empathy. How does stress get into the body? This is important because when stress gets in, it sets off a cascade of negative results that are affect our physical and emotional well-being. To cut to the chase, scientists and researchers believe that stress gets into the body through the immune system. Once stress activates immune responses, immune processes decided and designed to fight infection, the dominoes start falling. Diverse systems of the body can be left in a state of chronic inflammation, which left, if unaddressed, untreated, result in lifestyle disorders and diseases. These disorders include conditions such as irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, metabolic disorders, obesity, type 2 diabetes, congestive heart failure, chronic pulmonary obstructive disease, migraines and lower back pain, notoriously difficult to diagnose, and numerous allergies, peanut, gluten, lactose, dust, with which children and adults now find their vitality reduced. This list is not complete. The human immune system was developed between 100,000 and a million years ago when mammals and our early proto-human ancestors emerged on the plains of present-day East Africa. Now, one must be on guard against generating a just-so story about what life was like in such an early environment of evolutionary origin. Our ancestors faced a different set of challenges than we face today in the modern world. If they, our ancestors, wanted to get somewhere, they had to walk. 
If they wanted to do detailed work, such as sewing after sunset, they had to light a fire. If they got sick, they had a choice of naturally occurring purgatives, stimulants, or a sweat lodge to try to sweat out the toxins. They were exposed to physical hazards in chasing games such as rabbits or antelope for food through the bush. Injuries such as cuts and abrasions were common, and when such injuries to the skin occurred, the risk of infection was significant. Responding to tissue damage had a priority. If a wound became infected, the entire organism was at risk. Many clinics had not yet been invented. What the sick person experiences as the disease is actually the beneficial side effect of the defense mounted by the body's immune system against infection. Our bodies developed their built-in ability to heal wounds and respond to infections in this physically demanding environment. We are the beneficiaries of millennia of natural selection to protect the organism against wounds and infection. And in addition, we now have many clinics and antibiotics. The sick person experiences the disease as the body's defense. The wound temporarily becomes red, it is inflamed, and the body sometimes becomes feverish in an attempt to kill the intruder, literally by cooking it. As a part of this defensive response, the body engages in sick behavior. It tends to withdraw to its nest. It wants to lie down in its bed. It experiences low energy, has an increased need for sleep. Such behavior makes perfect sense in terms of rallying the body's resources to overcome the disease. The body summons defensive biological agents to the location of the injury. These defensive agents include macrophages, literally big eaters, that attack the foreign invader and encompass and digest, that is, eat them. The body's immune system sounds the alarm using messengers called cytokines, key term, cytokines, Cytokines have become famous because an entire theory of depression is named after them. More on that shortly. These big eaters, macrophages, and cytokines congregate at the site of the injury or infection, release toxic substances such as oxygen radicals that damage invaders and break down the invaders and damage tissue. These defenses have broad effects on the organism, as noted, including fever and inflammation, and they provide wound healing. Now, take this immune system, which was developed to guard against wounds and bacteria, and fast forward about half a million years to our own time. Modern humans no longer face hostile animals and the elements. It is true that parts of our modern cities have become immigrant jungles in which people behave aggressive ways towards their neighbor, but the majority of populations still manage to avoid such situations Granted, that is little consolation to those trapped in such social injustice, itself a source of social stress. Today, human beings face social stressors as well as biological ones. Such social stressors are symbolic, key term symbolic, in that they, the social stressors, represent non-material entities such as status, power, a piece of paper or electronic bits called money, expectations about the future, 
access to resources based on educational opportunities or lack thereof, and all kinds of meaning-making relating to social hierarchy, social relations, and symbolic goods. My car is fancier than your car. Of course, both will get me from point A to point B. For our proto-human ancestors, social status in the group translated into access to choice morsels of food and access to superior mating opportunities. Sounds familiar? Likewise with us, for us modern, the symbolic stress now has become chronic and unremitting. It is not that life as such was so much better when the vast majority of the population worked on the farm or were hunter-gatherers. Let us not idealize the past. Days were long, from sunrise to sunset, since electricity had not been invented. Life was surely physically harder. Diseases was not a symbolic threat. It was an ever-present danger and an immediate presence. Death was a daily companion and a near, not remote, possibility. However, expectations were probably lower. Resignation and acceptance of one's fate were embedded more deeply. People were too physically exhausted to worry about whether one's child would get into a preschool program that would enable her to qualify for Harvard. Perhaps that itself produced relief from chronic stress. If one lived even a hundred years ago, the likelihood was that if one survived childhood and childhood diseases, an infection such as influenza, tuberculosis, cholera, or pneumonia would eventually end one's life. Childhood mortality and death in childbirth were major factors limiting life expectancy. Though if one survived childhood, then one's life expectancy as an adult might well approach that which we enjoy today in developed countries with modern medicine and many clinics. The good news is sometimes also the less good news. Today, thanks to antibiotics and vaccinations, the vast majority of the population in developed countries survives long enough to develop chronic disorders associated with social distress and lifestyle responses to it. Connecting the dots, stress and inflammation. Chronic inflammation is associated with autoimmune disorders such as asthma, irritable bowel syndrome, metabolic disorders and allergies with which many people struggle, thereby finding their vitality reduced. People sometimes respond to these disorders by engaging in proper self-care, daily exercise, and well-balanced diets designed to promote health and well-being. People also respond by engaging in self-defeating behaviors. People try to self-medicate with alcohol. People eat unhealthy snacks. People sit on the couch and watch the flat panel screen TV. People try to regulate and regain their emotional equilibrium in the face of social stressors by acting out in ways that sabotage their own long-term well-being. Lack of exercise and poor nutritional choices, along with excessive use of alcohol, street drugs, Acting out behaviors such as gambling, sexual misadventures, binging, chronic subclinical sadness, negative self-talk, all these 
belong on the list of self-defeating behavioral reactions. The bottom line, when people practice healthy responses, not self-defeating one, the body mobilizes and applies its infection fighting responses to social stressors, even though the latter are not infections. This makes considerable sense if one considers that an adaptive response to overwhelming social stress is to withdraw from the conflict and retreat to sickness behavior. The stressed out individual retreats and avoids the stressful situation. The body makes one do this as a survival mechanism, getting out of a situation perceived to be no win, even if one's stubbornness of spirit would make one willing to fight on. Never was it truer, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The socially defeated person nurses his emotional wounds by going to bed with reduced appetite, lower energy, less enjoyment, less attention, and less focus and a need for sleep. The person finds his emotional and physical resources depleted. He takes to his nest to recover. And here is the punchline. The person acts depressed. Additional evidence of the link between inflammation and symptoms of depression come from modern cancer treatment. Cancer treatments target tumors and cancerous processes by means of intervention that simulate immune system reaction. These reactions use the above-cited cytokines caused and called interleukin and interferon. One result of the cancer treatment that surprised cancer doctors is that patients receiving such interventions succumbed to depression. They satisfied criteria for major depressive disorder, MDD. Note that the person receiving the treatment was not depressed beforehand. The person was not depressed because they have cancer, which can indeed be a depressing situation. No, the, the depression occurred even in people who have a positive attitude and are energetically fighting disease, who otherwise feel okay emotionally. The symptoms of depression are evidentially a side effect of the treatment, albeit one which is not as toxic as the cancer itself. As a further confirmation of this, the side effects yield to pharmacological treatments of depression, such as antidepressant medication. And then, in addition, the person regains their standard non-depressed outlook once the cancer treatment is finished. Psychologists Suzanne Segerstrom and Gregory Miller provide evidence demonstrating that the immune system is not as autonomous as it was once thought to be. The immune system provides a pathway for the environment, the social situation, the situation writ large, to influence the regulation of genes. Note that to be fully buzzword compliant, epigenesis, key term, epigenesis, is the process by which the environment influences the regulation of biologically given set of genes, the set being the genome, with which the person is endowed at birth. 
Popular biological wisdom is that a person's genes are like a set of cards dealt at the beginning of the game. Which one is required to play throughout the game without being able to exchange any of the cards? Even if you don't like the cards you're dealt, you cannot change them. On the contrary, the approach of epigenesis says, yes, you will have to play the hand you are dealt, but you get to exchange a couple of cards based on interacting with the environment, the physical environment, the social environment. The physical and social environments do not just cause occasional rare random mutations on genes. The environments are critical in activating or deactivating existing genes to produce diverse expressions of our biological capabilities, our biological selves. In short, the interaction is two-way, both from the genes to the organism and from the organism and its environment to the genes, more properly speaking, the genome, the set of genes that includes all the genetic material governing the organism's survival. Now add the stresses of the social environment to the physical mix of stressors. According to Segerstrom and Miller, the immune system responds to signals from the body's nervous and endocrine systems. The immune system is modifiable and responds to the signals of cytokines and macrophages as they produce antibodies to fight bacterial infections. This is where things get interesting. Environmental stressors to which the nervous system and endocrine system respond elicit responses from the immune system by way of activation of genes, genetic material that, in turn, perform protein synthesis, a major path by which the organism responds and attempts to maintain its equilibrium and well-being. Strictly speaking, stress affects the immune system in at least two ways. Stress does not always reduce immunity. It tends to downregulate, is the term of art, the antiviral response, viruses being a different form of attack than bacteria, and it tends to upregulate the response to wounds and bacterial infection. Due to the production of inflammatory substances designed to combat a bacterial infection, which bacteria does not exist in the scenario of chronic social stress, the individual becomes vulnerable to lifestyle and autoimmune disorders. Subclinical physical problems tend to get emotionally and psychically elaborated in notoriously difficult to manage inflammations that manifest themselves in headaches, migraines, irritable bowel, asthmas, allergies, lower back pain, and so on. The best defense is often a good offense. Apparently, the immune system agrees. Whether due to the haphazard design of evolutionary development, evolution is a kludge, the design of the immune system by trial and error in evolution, or whether due to a defect in encoding the symbolic threat, the organism doesn't understand the difference between a bacteria and the boss who is a bully or an overdue mortgage or teenagers acting out. The immune system counterattacks against stress 
as if it were an all-out attack by an infectious agent or wound. In the case of chronic stress, the side effects of the counterattack are inflammation. When the stress is chronic, the inflammation becomes chronic too. This is the situation of many contemporary stressed out individuals, at least intermittently, including me and you, the listeners to this podcast, struggling to survive modern life. The resulting gotcha is that many chronic stressors are largely symbolic. The stressed out person is not threatened by physical danger. The outcome is commonly observed. People who are chronically stressed out tend to get more colds and flus and upper respiratory things and the like due to the down regulation of the antiviral response. The cytokine theory of depression shows us some of the diverse ways by which people express their stress and suffering. The cytokine theory of depression indicates that people express their chronic stress by displaying sickness behavior. How does it work and what to do about it? Under standard conditions of moderate stress, the body regulates its own inflammatory activity. The neuroendocrine system regulates the body's response to stressors. Substances called steroids, glucocorticoids, are released to balance and limit the inflammatory action. However, in chronic stress, the process of regulation goes astray. The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal, HPA, axis is a major part of the neuroendocrine system. This is a set of functions which is a part of the lower brainstem. It regulates the body's reaction to external stressors by providing energy and focusing attention. Granted, the adrenal glands are not located in the brain, but interact with it. The HPA, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access, gets activated to release these and related steroids. However, under chronic stress, the glucocorticoid receptors seem to get fatigued. In effect, the receptors get stressed out. They become less responsive when under chronic stress, constantly being overstimulated in a process that unfortunately is not well understood biologically or scientifically. This phenomenon, however, has a name. It is called glucocorticoid insensitivity. For example, and as near as we can tell, according to Slavich and Cole, who report that steroid glucocorticoid receptors typically act to turn down the production of inflammation-related substances. However, during chronic psychological psychosocial stress or actual stress, glucocorticoid receptors fail to down-regulate the glucocorticoid responsive genes the way they are supposed to do so. In This is in spite of the glucocorticoid levels being either normal or elevated. They stop working or are no longer effective in countering inflammation. Further confirming this troubling outcome, a correlation is found between immune function and cortisol levels in depressed patients. The result is that the sickness behavior that we have been describing as the body's inflammatory response is prolonged.
Notice that these steroids then become an indicator, a biomarker, to use the technical term, of stress. In fact, the steroids are anti-inflammatory and anti-stress, but the body has stopped responding to them. And so they continue to float around in the bloodstream, in the organism, getting correlated with stress without functioning effectively as the anti-inflammatory substance that they are supposed to be. This is something that the popular treatment of corticosteroids has sometimes gotten mixed up. In stressed out people, steroids as a group, including cortisol, are anti-inflammatory hormones that are not working as designed. The idea is that the body was never designed to deal with chronic social stress as it occurs in modern technological society, and further innovations or simplifications are needed to overcome the challenge of responding to the stress. The research gets better. The meta-analysis of some 30 years of research by Segerstrom and Miller reports a significant association of depression and chronic inflammation with coronary heart disease, rheumatoid arthritis, stroke, and other diseases where macrophage activation occurs. The authors account for the three to one female-male incidence of depression ratio by estrogen's ability to activate macrophages and the relatively low level of depression in Japan, according to much research, as consistent with the suppressive effect of fatty acids and fish oil on macrophages. According to Segerstrom and Miller's interpretation, depression is a redescription of inflammation. If you are depressed, you need anti-inflammatory interventions. A major depressive disorder involves real suffering, and in no way does one want to make light of such suffering. Nevertheless, the out-of-the-box redescription just cited suggests that you are not really depressed, you just have an inflammation. Aspirin is an anti-inflammatory. Therefore, take two aspirin and call in the morning. Pause for laugh. This unsubtle joke, which you must admit is suitable for polite company, made many of my MD colleagues laugh out loud. And it points to the reason why this approach, the cytokine theory of depression, has not received more attention, though it has been validated and available since at least the mid-1990s. And here I do give the explicit footnote, evidence for an immune response in major depression, a review and hypothesis by M. Mays, M-A-E-S, 1995, in Progress in Neuropsychopharmacology and Biological Psychiatry, Volume 19, pages 1138, and Major Depression and Activation of the Inflammatory System, 1999, by M. Mays, in Advances in Experimental Medicine and Biology, Pages, volume 461, pages 25 through 46. 
Continuing. Why has this cytokine theory of depression not received more attention, though it has been validated since at least the mid-1990s? It would mean having to develop an entire class of anti-inflammatory antidepressants, which in turn would potentially undercut the vast existing market of antidepressants, especially selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, of which the poster child is floxetine, otherwise known as Prozac. It is by no means clear that such development of a new class of drugs would be feasible or, more to the point, profitable. Finally, and here there is some good news, alternative interventions already exist that reduce stress and reduce inflammation. And empathy is toward the top of the list of these. If we take a step back and note that with the publication of Peter Kramer's Listening to Prozac, 1991, the pharmacological interventions for depression knocked the legs out from all forms of talk therapy, even if SSRIs, such as floxetine, have not lived up to their initial exaggerated promise. The economics of current medical system prescribing favors, prefers, advantages, privileges, 15-minute medication management sessions over 45-minute conversations for insight and possibility. The reimbursement system is adhering to this assessment, even in the face of the hard-to-quantify trade-offs between quality and quantity. The conversation about evidence-based treatment is stuck in a loop of an either-or preference. Evidence, however, is available for the efficacy of each in sometimes diverging, sometimes overlapping contexts. The economics of talk therapy, even in the narrow sense of CBT, are underprivileged and marginalized by many insurance payers and the practitioners. This raises the engaging question of how SSRIs interact with those depressed individuals whose biomarkers show increased pro-inflammatory immune response and related increased in glucocorticoid resistance matching the previously described effects of major depressive disorder. As this podcast is being published second quarter 2021, the results are inconclusive. Further research is required. High blood serum levels of serotonin are completely consistent with high biomarkers for inflammation and vice versa. One possibility, though speculative, is that major depression is not a natural category, and one can obtain the symptoms of major depression as defined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, any version but the latest is version 5, 2013, by means of multiple molecular pathways. Once again, it is hypothetical and speculative, but just as scientific advances are showing that cancer is not a single disease at the molecular level, so too depression may well turn out to be multi dimensional and not a single disorder.
Nevertheless, this brings us back to the question. People are stressed out. People are suffering. What shall we do about it? Connecting the dots, anti-inflammation and empathy. This just in, the patients of medical doctors who score well on tests for empathy, give the medical doctor a test, how's your empathy, get a number. These patients have superior control over their bad cholesterol in comparison with patients who have doctors who score less well. Actually, this is not just in, but was published in the year 2011, about 10 years ago now. M. Ohat, H-O-J-A-T, researcher and scientist, and his colleagues found that patients of physicians with high empathy scores were significantly more likely to have good control of hemoglobin A1C, 50%, 56%, a biomarker for diabetes, than were patients of physicians with low empathy scores, 40%, P.001. In addition, Ohat and colleagues reported that the proportion of patients with good cholesterol over low-density lipid cholesterol, LDL-C, the so-called bad cholesterol, was significantly higher for physicians with high empathy scores, 59%, than with physicians with low scores, 44%, P less than 0.001. Ohat and colleagues also reported that the physician's empathy had a unique contribution to the prediction of optimal clinical outcomes after controlling for the physicians and the patient's gender and age and the patient's health insurance. Thus, anti-inflammatory intervention, in this case, hypothesized to be empathy, exists and have been shown to make a difference in controlled experiments, evidence-based research, and peer-reviewed publication. Empathy, as noted, is at the top of the list. This bears repeating. Empathy is at the top of the list, but is not the only thing on it. Spiritual practices, such as yoga, tai chi, mindfulness, meditation, are also on the list. These are not reducible to empathy, or vice versa, but they share a common factor, an outcome of reduced inflammation. Stress reduction practices, such as receiving empathy from one's doctor, put the person in touch with her or his immediate experience. They promote the person's experiencing life without anything added, without filters, without labels and categories. And in specific cases, about to be cited, they can be shown in evidence-based studies to reduce the biomarkers of stress and stress-related lifestyle disorders, such as high cholesterol, diabetes type 2, and so on. People tend to feel better, perform better, enjoy expanded vitality in conjunction with these practices. Therefore, we shall cast a wide net in this podcast in gathering reminders as how to reduce stress in such a way that the stress reduction practices get inside the body and make a difference. 
The empathy lesson? Peer-reviewed research studies have provided an evidence-based link between practitioners who deliver empathy to their patients and clients and favorable healthcare outcomes. What is interesting is that these evidence-based studies exclude psychiatric disorders and emphasize outcome for lifestyle disorders such as reduced cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, in order to better isolate and control the empathic input to the process, which is otherwise so pervasive in a psychiatric context. A separate study by Del Canale and colleagues showed that physicians with high empathy scores had patients with significantly fewer metabolic complications from diabetes. The study concluded that these results indicate physician empathy is significantly associated with clinical outcome for patients with diabetes mellitus and should be considered an important component of clinical competence. It gets better for empathy. These are not just one-off studies. A meta-study of healthcare outcomes across all kinds of doctor visits in which objective measures such as blood pressure were available indicated a significant correlation between empathy and favorable outcomes. In a meta-study, John Kelly and his colleagues, including Helen Reese, reported on empathy publications of randomized controlled trials, RCT, in adult patients. In these randomized controlled trials, the patient-clinician relationship was systematically considered and healthcare outcomes were either objective, for example, blood pressure, or validated subjective measures, for example, pain scores. A broad and diverse variety of disorders were engaged empathically. Disorders studied included patients with diabetes, osteoarthritis, fibromyalgia, lower respiratory infection, oncology, osteoarthritis, hypertension, smoking, somatic complaints, and asthma. The median patient sample size was 279, but ranged from 85 to 7,557. The researchers acknowledge that they cannot be sure if in the context of a empathic medical practice, key term, empathic medical practice, the favorable outcome is due to improved compliance with physician guidance, patient motivation to take action to recover well-being, education, the self-healing properties of the body under reduced stress, which, by the way, is my favorite interpretation, or most likely a combination of all these factors. On the one hand, further research is needed. On the other hand, results are results. Once again, correlation points to a significant path to improved outcome through empathic treatment, but is not causation. With that caution in mind, empathy has been shown to correlate with reduced duration of the common cold. Now, no one is saying that empathy is the cure for the common cold. But the results are definitely suggestive of the healing powers of stress reduction. Quote, in those physicians with perfect care scores, care, consultation, and relational empathy, 
the cold durations were shorter, 7.1 days versus 8.01 days. In these model, a perfect score also correlates with a large increase in interleukin-8, a cytokine level, end quote. That is, the immune response was increased. The research further engaged and evaluated immune response by measuring concentrations of interleukin-8 from nasal wash specimens at enrollment and at follow-up visits some 48 hours later. Interleukin-8 is an inflammatory cytokine found in nasal secretions. It increases with viral upper respiratory infections. It is reportedly one of the best single markers of immune response for upper respiratory infections acquired in a community setting. It correlates well with symptoms and is reliably measured. If we look carefully, we can see the hype in the media and the press coming into view. The researchers concluded that empathy, as perceived by patients having a common cold, significantly predicts subsequent duration and severity of illness and is associated with immune system changes. My conclusion, do not underestimate the healing powers of empathy. However, empathy is not the only intervention that correlates with improved results. Other practices such as meditation, mindfulness, yogic meditation, and Tai Chi produce a similar result. Several paths are available to stress reduction. We look at these alternative paths now. For example, Thaddeus Pace and his colleagues at Emory University report that meditation practices impact physiological pathways, including the immune and neuroendocrine systems, which are regulated by stress and are related to diverse diseases. How could they possibly know? The researchers grouped people into meditators and non-meditators. The researchers took blood, plasma samples, and reported the results. In plain English, the biomarkers of stress went down significantly for those engaging in meditating compassionately, thinking kind thoughts and thinking charitable thoughts. The researchers report that physiologic and behavioral responses to the Tier Social Stress Test, TSST, were determined by repeated assessments of plasma concentrations of interleukin-6 and cortisol, as well as total distress scores on the Profile of Mood States, POMS. For the meditating group, increased meditation practice was correlated with decreased interleukin-6 and improved distress scores. More evidence proving common sense? Individuals who meditated more enjoyed proportionately reduced stress. The researchers cautiously conclude that engagement in compassion, meditation, thinking kind thoughts, being charitable in one's thoughts may reduce stress-induced immune and behavioral responses. Once again, empathy and compassion are indeed distinct, but both get one in touch with one's own experience in such a way that one is accepting of whatever it is that one is experiencing, thereby reducing conflict and enabling the spontaneous stress reduction process to get traction.
family members and caretakers that provide support and care for people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia are vulnerable to a variety of stress-related disorders. Providing such care is extremely stressful for many reasons, including the inability of the patient to acknowledge the contribution of the caregiver and the destructive nature of the disease, the frequent absence of an empathic response. David Black and his colleagues, Steve Cole and Michael Irwin and others at the University of California, Los Angeles, reported that dementia caregivers who practice meditation show improvement in their own mental health indices, such as depression and anxiety, which are indices associated with inflammatory markers, such as IL-6, interleukin-6. Black and Cole investigated if yogic meditation changes the activity of inflammatory and antiviral pathways that shape gene-mediated immune system response. 45 family dementia caregivers were randomized either to the Kirtan Kira meditation or relaxing music, listening for 12 minutes daily for eight weeks, and 39 caregivers completed the study. Genome-wide transcriptional profiles were collected from peripheral blood leukocytes sampled at baseline and eight-week follow-up. Without going into the wealth of details provided by the authors, the researchers identified a reversal of patterns previously linked to stress. Their study concluded that a brief daily yogic meditation intervention reverses the pattern of increased pro-inflammatory cytokines and decreases antiviral response genes previously observed in healthy individuals confronting a significant life stressor. Eight weeks of structured yogic meditation reversed patterns of increased pro-inflammatory genes and decreased genes previously associated in healthy individuals with reduced inflammation. Meditating reduces stress and enhances immunity. The authors generalized that adverse life events such as social isolation, imminent bereavement, PTSD, chronic loneliness, social stress, and low socioeconomic status increased inflammation-related gene activation and decreased the activity of innate antiviral genes. Once again, meditating reduces stress and enhances immunity. Michael Irwin and Richard Olmsted reported on a stress-reducing study which engages the properties of Tai Chi Chin, a soft martial art that practices continuous, slow motion following movements. The researchers describe Tai Chi as a behavioral intervention. Practicing it daily reduces circulating levels of inflammatory biomarkers, interleukin-6, in older adults, the target population in the study. These individuals are frequently at risk for inflammation-related diseases. The researchers note that their findings are consistent with high rates of depressive disorders in persons with inflammatory disorders. They cite evidence that experimental activation of inflammatory signaling 
induces feelings of social withdrawal, depressed mood, and anhedonia. The researchers cautiously report that circulating levels of inflammatory markers rise with age even in healthy individuals, and the proportion of persons with elevated levels of IL-6 rises markedly among persons older than 70 years, increasing the risk of inflammation-related disorders, cardiovascular disease, heart failure, cancer, Alzheimer's, and related neurodegenerative diseases, metabolic alterations, and diabetes. Generalizing on this research, a small set of practices, such as receiving empathy, meditation, mindfulness, yogic meditation, and Tai Chi promote well-being by reducing inflammation. These practices are not reducible to empathy or vice versa, but they all share the common factor of reducing inflammation. These anti-inflammatory interventions have been shown to make a difference in controlled experiments, evidence-based research, and peer-reviewed publications. Empathy is at the top of my list, but it is not the only item on it. As noted, empathy along with mindfulness, a form of meditation, yoga, tai chi, spending time in a sensory deprivation tank, not otherwise discussed in this podcast in the detail that it deserves, and certain naturally occurring steroids need to be better known as interventions that reduce inflammation and restore homeostatic equilibrium to the body according to evidence-based research. In conclusion, in summary, when bacteria attack the human body, the body's immune system mounts an inflammatory defense that sends macrophages to the site of the injury of the attack and causes sickness behavior in the person. The infected person takes to bed, takes to his nest, sleeps either too much or too little, has no appetite, experiences low energy, possibly has a fever, including the blahs, body aches, and flu-like symptoms. This response has evolved over millions of years and is basically healthy as the body conserves its energy and fights off the infection using its natural immune response. Now, fast forward to modern times. This natural response did not envision the stresses of modern life back when we were short stature proto-humanoids inhabiting the Serengeti plain and defending ourselves against large predators, big cats, and hostile neighbors. Basically, the body responds in the same way to the chronic stressors of modern life. As noted, the boss at work is a bully, the mortgage is overdue, the teenagers are acting out, the spouse is having a midlife crisis, give me a break, and the result is sickness behavior, many of the symptoms of which resemble depression, but there is no infection, no bacteria, just inflammation. The inflammation becomes chronic and the body loses its sensitivity to naturally occurring anti-inflammatory hormones, which would ordinarily kick in to down-regulate the inflammation after a few days. Peer-reviewed articles, papers, research provide evidence demonstrating that interventions such as empathy reduce biological markers of inflammation and restore equilibrium. This is also a metaphor. 
when an angry, inflamed person is listened to empathically, is given a good listening, as I like to say, the person frequently calms down, remits, and regains his or her equilibrium. Empathy migrates onto the short list of inflammation-reducing interventions. The compelling conclusion is that empathy is good for your health and well-being.